1: Buddy, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's Americans in Action edition of the show, we're going to be taking a deeper look at six players in the US MNT pool to, ter- to determine what these players are good at, what they're bad at, and what their ideal roles could be or should be for the US men's national team. Also, this week, we're going to have a list of questions. There'll be a Champions League preview and a She Believes preview slash NWSL chat with Steph Yang. Uh, that will be later in the week. Today, it's Americans in Action. To do so, I'm joined by two gentlemen up first, Joe Lowry. Joe, thank you for being here, my friend. Of course, Taylor. Good to be back. Yeah, man. Now, Joe, I know you've been uh, spending some time breaking down MLS intra-league moves, I believe was the specific category. Which one of those moves that you wrote about has been your favorite or the most interesting
2: for whatever reason? Sure. Yeah, the MLS season is getting closer and closer, which is kind of blowing my mind. So these these conversations are getting more and more relevant. Taylor, to your point, it was a busy offseason and has been a busy offseason for players moving from one team in MLS to another team in MLS. And I just had a piece published for The Athletic about those moves, or at least a lot of the ones that caught my eye, or a lot of the bigger names. Two, I'm going to cheat and do two, that really stood out to me. Paul Areola from D.C. United to F.C. Dallas. This one stands out for a couple reasons. One, $2 $2 million in general allocation money, which is a record-breaking trade, and and I believe that record had already been broken at least once, if not twice in this offseason alone. That's happening as more and more GAM is infused into these teams with the CBA and with blah, 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 go listen to Allocation Disorder for all that stuff. All that to say, Paul Areola moving to Dallas is interesting for that reason that lots of money involved here, but also because Nico Estevez has a chance to really shape this Dallas team. Ariola on one side, potentially Jesus Ferreira as a nine, and then Alan Velasco, who's a record-breaking incoming transfer from outside Major League Soccer for Dallas, potentially on the other uh, other wing, maybe at shown on that side. There's talent there in Dallas, and I'm interested to see how they use it. The other move, Maxime Crepeau, goalkeeper, Canadian international. He was one of the best shot stoppers in MLS last year for the Vancouver Whitecaps. Traded to LAFC, and that's huge for Steve Cherundolo and this LAFC team. They allowed last year under Bob Bradley a-, a ton more goals than expected. So based on FB Rep's post-shot expected goals stat, they allowed five goals more than they should have. Crepo saved almost eight goals more than he should have for Vancouver last year. You smash those two things together, and LAFC just improved a whole lot in that goalkeeper spot, Taylor.
1: Overall, Joe, for LAFC, we will introduce our other co host but I have questions. Uh, for LAFC, I think when we last talked about them, or when I last talked about them, I had some concerns about what they were doing, about some of the players that they were letting go. Are you feeling better about their roster build thus far? If you're giving it a thumbs up, a thumbs down, or a thumbs medium, where are you tending to point that thumb?
2: I I do like a lot of the moves they've made this offseason to replace some of the talent that's left this group. So you lose Eduardo Atuesta. They bring in Kellen Acosta in that sixth spot. I assume he's going to be playing the sixth, but I don't really know I don't think Acosta is a perfect player, and we've talked about that plenty in the past. And hey, maybe we'll talk about it on an Americans in Action show at some point over the next month or so. But he he does have range defensively. He can cover ground. He can press. And it sounds like Steve Chirondolo is going to be wanting a lot of that from his midfield group. So I I, I do like aspects of that move for LAFC. Craig Poe, I think, is a brilliant signing, maybe the best signing or the most impactful signing of the entire offseason. And then Franco Escobar is another player that I wrote about in that article for The Athletic. He is a guy who can play right back. He did that for Tata Martino in at Atlanta United. He's done that for Newell's old boys in Argentina. Or he can play as a, as a center back, potentially on the right side of a back three. He's so skilled on the ball, tons of mobility, really aggressive as a player can press. I love that signing for LAFC. And I, I do appreciate some of the moves they've made to replace and, and supplement the roster they already have.
1: Uh, Joe, three good answers. Unfortunately, you said you would give two. So I am taking off five points for your answer. <laughs> We're on points now. It's a new system. Okay, and you okay. didn't mention Albert Rusnak. So while you go deal with uh, angry messages from Seattle fans, Yikes. I will introduce our other co-host, the USMNT's newest biggest fan in Scotland. It's Graham <laughs> Ruthven. Hi, Graham. Hello, Taylor. How are you? Doing well, buddy. Good, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you about uh, some Americans in action. A quick question for you, Graham, you all to start. Which mm-hmm. player that we're going to be discussing on this episode did you enjoy watching or learning about the most for whatever reason? Spoiler alert for listeners. We watched film on Josh Sargent, Jossie Zardes, Anthony Robinson, Christian Pulisic, Yunus Musa, and Tyler Adams. Graham, based on how much footage you watched, I'm going to assume the answer is Jossie Zardes, but I yes. leave it to you to actually answer.
3: Yeah, so Zardes was the first player that I I started to analyze. I ended up watching about an hour of tape of Zardes, um, which may not sound that uh, that much, but when you're analyzing through Wisecout, it's very uh, it, it's very efficient in how much you can watch all at one time. So that was a that was a lot of matches. I was also looking at his his stats on StatsBomb and so on, and it got to about an hour in. I went, yeah, I'm not going to be able to spend this <laughs> amount of time on every single player. Yep. I think Zardes was most interesting because obviously we have. Um, let's just say there are some perceptions of of, of Zardes, Jassi Zardes, oh, how, he, how he plays I had no idea. for the USMNT. And so I, I was interested in kind of challenging those. And some of those perceptions, as I'm sure we will cover, are correct and accurate and, and others are, are not so correct and accurate. And I think that's a common theme through what we're trying to do today is maybe um, challenge some of those perceptions and, yeah. and provide a little bit more depth into what players are good at and what they're maybe not so good at. All right. I'm excited for that. However, I am aware that with the three of us, I'm going to try to take a little bit of a back seat, And
1: whenever I try to do that, I feel like I end up talking twice as much as I plan to. Uh, So I'm going to put us on a clock for this one. We have six players. I'm going to say we've got about eight minutes or so per player, to uh, talk about the strengths, talk about the weaknesses, talk about where they fit. Joe, let's start with Josh Sargent. I enjoyed watching him most of all. Strangely, I think I learned some new things about him. Joe, what was your Josh Sargent viewing experience like? I will start the timer now.
2: It was pretty much exactly what I expected it to be, All guys. Right. I'm not going to lie. We've seen Josh Sargent play for a lot of really bad club teams, mm-hmm. right? That's the reality in his professional career so far. He played for Werder Bremen, and they really struggled, especially towards the latter stages of his time in Germany. And now with Norwich, it's a bad team struggling to stay up in the Premier League. The, the main overarching takeaway for me here on Josh Sargent is that he's a striker, that doesn't score a lot of goals so far in his professional club career he scored 15 goals in 5387 minutes and that minutes is is probably even a little under it's off of fb ref and i don't believe they count stoppage time so hey maybe even trending towards 5500 minutes he doesn't put the ball in the back of the net a whole lot. He's good at a lot of things, Taylor and Graham. He's good at moving uh, quickly off the ball, uh, moving quickly on the ball, excuse me. He's hardworking. He's fast. He does a ton of defensive work for a forward. You look at his numbers on FB ref and he's off the charts on so many of these different defensive metrics. He's good in the scrap, has some technical quality, can drop in. We've seen that all the way back to the U.S. youth ranks. But man, he, he struggles to put the ball in the back of the net. And I think there's a few different reasons for that. And maybe you guys have thoughts on those things. But yeah, a striker that doesn't score goals is mm. maybe
3: not a striker. Yeah, but that, that was that was definitely one of the things that I had in, in <laughs> my weaknesses for Sargent. It's a, a fairly oh, really? obvious one. Okay. He doesn't score many goals. And it's mentioned quite a few times. Uh, it's been mentioned a few times on this podcast in the past. But I was trying to figure out what he's doing wrong. And one of the, one of the things when I was looking at the tape was the number of times that i would i'd see sergeant take a shot too hastily when an extra touch or a or a changing of the angle might have given him a better chance of hitting the target so i once heard someone say that great goal scorers they know that you have an extra half second than you think you do to score and i feel like sergeant misses that instinct so when he gets a shot away, it's frequently blocked. Um, and obviously you could argue that Norwich's situation is a factor, that he's snatching at chances in a way that he wouldn't normally. Well, I went back to look at some of his uh, Werder Bremen games, and this was still a common theme as well. I, I often felt like the angle he was taking shots at weren't weren't ideal. They were easy for defenders to block. So maybe, maybe that is a, a weakness in, in his game a little bit.
1: Grant, how much of that do you attribute to those two clubs that you're mentioning being for Werder Bremen, a club at the bottom of the table getting relegated, yeah. for uh, for Norwich being in a similar conversation? I do wonder if he has this idea, like he doesn't have much time. Opportunities are going to be at a premium, so take your chance. Make sure you get that shot off, and maybe sometimes he's rushing it because there's that fear that there won't be more opportunities down the road.
3: Yeah, perhaps, and and that's where it's it's difficult with the with the sample size. Obviously, we we've only really got those Verder Bremen games and those Norwich games to to go on. So maybe if you put him in a good team you see a you see a different Josh Sargent. Unfortunately we haven't had that that privilege to see that player. But I think the two goals he scored recently for Norwich showed that when he maybe doesn't have the time to think about taking the chance is. he is a lot more effective so you know he scores that that um that backheel flick and then he scores that header was that against Everton it was a 3-0 win I think for Norwich in that game and the Norwich fans are chanting USA USA and it, <laughs> it, those those opportunities it felt like he didn't have the, opp- the the time to think about them so maybe when it's up to him to create the angle or create the shot he's maybe lacking in that sense
0: That
1: is about where I landed on him and a few other players as well. It stood out to me how many of these players, when you break them down to the basic components, are raw. Like, they're very good, they're very talented, they've got a lot of athleticism. But there is a little bit of quality that lets them down. And with Sargent, my overall takeaway was that he's basically 75% good most of the time. That there will be a good run, but then there's a heavy touch. There will be a good, like, like, controlling a long ball... Taking that first touch and then, as you said, Graham, like rushing the cross or rushing the shot. And it feels like when he has time to think, when he has time to really try to figure out what he's doing, that is where his moves break down. And contrasting with that would be the two goals he scored against uh, Watford, where they're both very opportunistic finishes. One is sort of like falling the wrong way, ball played behind him. He gets the outside of his foot slash heel to it, puts it in off the bar. The other being the late arriving header. But both of those felt like he's playing on instinct. And it seems like when Josh Sargent plays on instinct, he is good. Joe, when he plays on uh, basically his overall skill set and slowing the game down, he is 75% good.
2: And I think one area where that applies is his movement inside the box. I talked about how Josh Sargent plays quickly, and a lot of the time he does – but when he's inside the 18, I feel like a lot of the times, and I think this is borne out in the footage as well, a lot of the time his movement isn't particularly sharp and he's not particularly active in the box. And And the grand overarching theme here is that it's a little challenging to actually judge a lot of these things for Sargent when he's played a, the majority of his professional club minutes with really bad teams and he doesn't have many chances to shoot at all. He's not even in the box all that much. But in the opportunities that he's been in the box for Norwich or in the past of Werder Bremen, he's not as active there as you would like him to be. And the same for the U.S. men's national team. You know, he he hasn't played a ton for the U.S. in World Cup qualifying. And he's he's been shunted out to the right wing even when he has been involved at times in the past for the U.S. earlier in the cycle. But he's not active in those spaces. And it's hard for me, and this is where I, I get a little bit sad thinking about Josh Sargent right now, is he still young, right? He's, what, 21? He's a young player. But he's not going to get many more opportunities to work and refine his movement in the box. This is why I mentioned sort of tongue-in-cheek, but also I think it would be a really good thing for Josh Sargent, a move to Sporting Kansas City. Move to a team that actually creates chances. Move to a team that allows you to be a lone nine-up top that mirrors the U.S. men's national team setup, at least in some ways, and get reps. is not getting reps. He's getting 1.57 shots per 90 minutes, which puts him in the fifth percentile among all forwards in the top five leagues in Europe and among players in European competitions. He barely shoots. He has almost no chances to do anything. Part of that is his fault for not moving more off the ball, but part of that is also the situation around him. And I don't really see that changing anytime soon, which is a bummer.
3: Joe, interesting you mentioned there that you would see him as a number nine for Sporting KC, because I was going to ask you that Positionally, what is Josh Sargent's best position? Because I'm going to reference StatsBomb a lot in this podcast. I found it really interesting. They do they do a, posi- a positional comparison, and and for each player, they will give you a list of comparable players. So they actually have Josh Sargent down as a they have him down as the attacking midfielder winger category, which is obviously down to how he how he's played for Norwich this season. He's tended to play off the right side for them, and the player one of the players that they likened him to was. Dan James, which I thought was very thought-provoking. The Statsbomb have, have, uh, have judged that based on his stats and the position he plays, that Dan James, Leeds United winger, former United player, is similar to Josh Sargent. That isn't how I would categorise Josh Sargent primarily, but maybe that's the role he is playing for Norwich, and maybe we're thinking about his contribution in a, in a different way, and maybe in a wrong way. I, I'm
2: very open to the nine not being Sargent's position long term. Maybe the scuff folks have mentioned, I think at least Bells has mentioned, Maybe you put him as an eight and let him run and do a lot of the box to box work and connect a little bit. I'm not opposed to that. I don't know that it would work. But at this point, the nine isn't working all that well for Sargent either. I'm not opposed to to write back, honestly, either maybe do a more permanent Jossie Zardes and what. Sardis had to do for the Galaxy for at least a few games back in, I don't know, 2016, whatever that was. But for me, with the Dan James comparison, Graham, the challenge with playing Sargent as a winger, and this is why I don't really like him there and haven't liked him for Norwich, is he's not a threat on the dribble. He's a threat to, to put the ball past you and run behind you, but he's not dangerous when he's going at you 1v1 on the dribble. He doesn't have that part of his game, and maybe that comes over time. Maybe that comes easier to Sargent than his movement in the box and, and his timing inside those spaces to get more shots off. But I, I'm skeptical of that. Given his upbringing, I don't think he spent a lot of time out wide. I don't see, other than the speed and the the directness that I think Dan James has, I don't think I would take Sargent in a 1v1 versus many opposing fullbacks, at least in terms of dribbling. All
1: right. We've 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 done our eight minutes on Josh Sargent. To, so to summarize, Diddle. he can move <laughs> on and off the ball, works hard, runs a lot. Struggles to score, uh, plays for teams that uh, aren't so good, so he needs to get more reps with a team that is better to let him shine all the more. Could play a lot of positions, still functioning as a number nine, but uh, has some versatility so we could see that changed up. Is that a fair summary of everything we've said so far?
2: The one thing I'll couple with slightly is I think the movement off the ball is more of a challenge than, okay. than that summary represented. Maybe I didn't express that well enough, but I think that for me is, is so often with strikers and we'll talk about strikers again and with Jesse Zardes in just a second. But so often the issue there is the movement inside the 18 isn't quick enough. It isn't sharp enough and they're not manipulating defenders and Sargent doesn't do that for all the reasons we, we mentioned already. Thank you for that clarification,
1: Joe, sincerely. Uh, but I will go to Graham for us to talk about Giassi Zardes. Graham, you've done some Zardes viewing. What have you learned, my friend?
3: I've learned a lot <laughs> 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 about Zardes. Oh, so no. I, I try with Zardes maybe more so than any other player in this list. I also tried to do this with Pulisic, to be to be fair. But I just tried to put kind of everything out of my mind and try not to think of the perceptions that people have of Zardes and try not to let that bias, bias me in any way. Um, he, there is this notion that Zardes isn't a goal scorer. I, I suggest,
1: uh, that, that pause suggests that you maybe didn't succeed in that endeavor.
3: <laughs> yeah, I had mixed results <laughs> in that process. Um, yeah, so there's this notion that he isn't a goal scorer, that when Berhalter starts him as the number nine, he's looking for qualities beyond an ability to put the ball on the back of the net. And there may be some truth to that, that we'll explore a little bit further, but, Zardes is in the 80th percentile of MLS forwards over the last year for goals per 90 minutes, 0. 0.52. He's in the 86th percentile for non-penalty goals over over 90 minutes, per 90 minutes. So I'm not saying he's the American Lewandowski. He's not exactly, but he's not exactly a, a goalless striker. He is into double figures for the US and, and senior caps. He's he's scored pretty much a goal every other game for, for Columbus if you look at his league um, statistics as well. And I was trying to think of how you would use Zardes because he is good as a as a presser. You know that's one of the reasons why you maybe have him and in the team. Looking at Zardes' number. There is some evidence to support that hypothesis that he is in the team as a presser in terms of MLS forwards. He's in the 86th percentile for touches in the defensive third, 1.39 per 90 minutes. So Berhalter is right to think that he can track back and help out defensively. If you look at the Canada game, Zardes is back helping out Dest. There are times when he's actually at Turner's byline helping out, kind of preventing a corner. He covers a lot of ground. Um, but I do wonder if have, if, if, when I see him, up front on his own, it does often feel like he's quite isolated. And I, I, this would take a pretty fundamental uh, shift from Berhalter in terms of his tactics. So it's not going to happen. But I do wonder if you might get the best out of Zardes as part of a front two. I don't really know how you construct the midfield. Maybe you get width from the fullbacks. You keep the MMA midfield and then have Pulisic and Reyna as the drifting number ten with a front two ahead of him, but without the same levels of poop houseery. I see a little bit of Diego Costa in Jassie Zardes, which I know is maybe surprising. But I then went and looked at Diego Costa's numbers, and a lot of there are there are parallels to be drawn there in the way that he presses, in the way that he is uh, he you know he does his defensive work, he does carry a goal threat. But Diego Costa always does his does his best work when he has you know Antoine Griezmann alongside him, or a or a or a a true goal scorer, you know, a penalty bo- po- poacher. And I'm just wondering, you know, maybe if you get Ricardo Pepe alongside Jassie Zardes. Maybe that rounds out some of the flaws that you do have in uh, Jassie Zardes' game. As I say, I don't think Berhalter's going to do that. But in terms of what an ideal role for Zardes might be, um, I think there could be something in that.
1: Uh, Joe, I'm inclined to agree with Graham because watching Zardes uh, in these, this last international break, but then going back and watching some of his time with Columbus, I was surprised by how good he is with his back to goal in bringing the ball down and controlling it and holding off a defender but I agree with Graham entirely that he's especially good when he has people around him to lay the ball off to or play that lateral pass and spin off and then make the run in behind if he has to create even if he has time if he doesn't have a defender right on his back if he has to turn and go at the defense that's where I tend to see that heavy touch or just that dribble that's a little bit too long or it takes him into a weird position and I think with numbers around him he is definitely much better in isolation I think that is definitely
2: where he's he struggles a bit. I would lean towards a 10 versus another 9 next to him. I, I agree with the general premise here. You think about how the Columbus crew have set up in every season that Jossie Zardes has been there, I believe, dating back to 2018. It's been a 4-2-3-1 almost every single game under Greg Beralter and then under Caleb Porter. With Higuain under him, with uh, Federico Iguain underneath Jossie Zardes as that 10. And then with uh, with Lucas Elrayan as that 10 underneath Zardes. And in, in every single season, except last year, but even Graham read off some numbers from this past season that still reflected pretty well on Jossi's Artis, but in every season besides 2021 with the Columbus Crews, Artis has put up double-digit goals and uh, double-digit expected goals every single season, barring, again, last year. He's a dangerous number 9 in Major League Soccer, and he has a lot of qualities that you guys have already mentioned that make him a dangerous number 9 at the international level as well, or at least that can make him that dangerous number 9. Peralta cited, at least according to CBS Sports, he cited Zardes' defensive work and his pressure and his physicality, his aerial ability. We've mentioned some of those things already as to why he started against Canada. He can be an outlet. He can be an aerial presence. One thing that I don't think we've mentioned as much, although, Taylor, you were starting to get there He moves well off the ball. The big thing with Jossi Zardes is he manipulates defenders. I was watching footage on this guy, and he came off the bench. Zardes against Jamaica in October for the U.S. men's national team. He came off the bench. I believe Pepe started that game in a 2-0 U.S. win. Comes off the bench, gets inside the box, cuts in front of Kamar Lawrence right at the near post, and gets a really nice shot off off of that brilliantly timed and executed movement. Andre Blake makes the save just barely at the near post. But it's those kinds of runs from Zardes where he cuts in front of a defender or behind a defender that makes him such a dangerous number nine. It's those moments, Taylor, that you mentioned where he's spinning off and getting him behind. Those things that rely – Zardes relying on the intricacies of his movement. And I don't know that with the U.S.'s chance creation struggles that we saw against Canada and we've seen at other times in World Cup qualifying and other times under Greg Berhalter. I don't know that with those chance creation struggles, we see the best version of art Zardes, and maybe putting a 10 underneath him fixes some of those things, although I don't know if that's worth it for the other things you sacrifice with the US, but I digress.
1: Is this a, a gentler, longer way of saying then, Joe, that he doesn't really fit with the USMNT under Berhalter, at least right now, that unless he can add certain things to his game or sort of implement more of what Berhalter needs, it feels like he needs support around him. He needs other players that would require, as Graham said as well, to change the formation, to change, change the shape or change the approach a little bit. Do you feel like it's not going
2: to quite work for him at present? Well, I mean, I think every striker needs those things. Every striker true, wants true. those things. If you're playing in a four-three-three, I mean, strikers all over the world play in four-three-three shapes, right, and score goals. You think about okay, Manchester City is probably not the best example, but but there, there's teams all over the world that will use that shape. Barcelona under Pep use that shape. And their forward line scored a ton of goals. It's about the movement and the players underneath the striker in that four-three-three shape. So maybe a 4-2-3-1, a more basic shape would fit Zardes. And I'd bank that it would it would maybe fit the rest of the pool, the rest of the nine pool as well, at least in their immediate needs for having players around them. But you sacrifice other things. You don't, maybe if you're the U.S., have the personnel to have that perfect Zelarayan or Higuain type number 10 underneath Zardes or underneath Sargent or underneath whoever's playing that nine spot, Pepe. So it, it's hard. I don't know that the U.S. has a perfect solution, and I think getting rid of Zardes would be a mistake because, in my mind, he's at the level or maybe even slightly above a lot of the other nines in this pool right now. Graham, 40 seconds for your thoughts on Zardes.
3: Uh, I don't know. I think I might need more than 40 seconds. <laughs> That's, fine. That's um, fine. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, they're looking at kind of things that he is, he is good at, Um how often do the US put early crosses into the box from the fullback positions? It's not something that I would necessarily associate with Berhalter ball, if we're going to call it that. But looking at, at where Zardes is yeah. most dangerous for Columbus, he is really good at finding space in, betwi- in, in between the you know centre-backs and an opposition defence. And um you know getting on the end of crosses with his head, I, I looked through some of his goals for Columbus. I think the last two goals he scored for columbus were 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 like this, and then I went through back like kind of ten goals and there was about four of those ten were like this where he is he 's recognizing the flight of an early cross into the box from the fullback positions he's he 's creating space between the center backs and he 's heading home well that isn 't something that I personally have seen from the u s so that just maybe feeds into this idea that Berhalter's team is not playing to Zardes' strengths. That was just another observation that I I made. So
1: this, honestly, it's an uncomfortable position because it's not a, like, yes, no, it's not a definitive answer. But it feels like an accurate representation of where Zardes is, where the national team is, that... We don't think that he should be sort of cast off. We're not saying, yep, he doesn't fit. He's not good enough. We got to move on. But we are saying it doesn't feel like the U.S., as they're presently set up, plays to his strengths or allows him to be the best player he can be. So it essentially, our answer to what he's bad at or what needs to be improved is either the U.S. structure needs to adjust to kind of better accommodate him, or he needs to get better at individual things so that they don't have to adjust that structure. But then we're sort of talking about a different player. Is that about where we are with Zardes?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Taylor, yes. I think that's spot on. I mean, he's 30 right now, right? Mm-hmm. Jossie Zardes isn't going to change his game. He's not the fastest guy. He's not always the most technical. That was a big knock on Zardes for a long time, at least in my mind, is, oh, he's got a, you know, bricks for feet and he can't, you know, link up. And I don't think that's really true at this point, but he is not Jesus Ferreira and how he combines yeah. in between the lines. So there are things holding Jossie Zardes back from being this elite, well-rounded number nine that likely aren't going to change. And so then we're still left grappling from a U.S. men's national team perspective about, okay, how does this team create chances for Zardes, for Pepe, for whoever is that number nine? And uh, those are more complicated problems. They
1: are, and they lead to the next player we're going to talk about. But first, we're going to take a break to hear from today's sponsors. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Welcome back. We've talked about two Americans. We're going to talk about four more. Right now, we're going to talk about Christian Pulisic, a divisive figure, I would say, which is a strange thing to say about one of the best players in the pool. But I was reading some of the coverage of him at Chelsea and leading into this last international break, and so much of it was about uh, how much he needed to turn things around, how this was an opportunity for him to prove and remind Thomas Tuchel that he is this really good player, that he can be this next-level performer who can create from nothing. And instead, Joe... We saw a pretty frustrating performance from Christian Pulisic, at least. That's my takeaway from it. Uh, from rewatching that footage and some of his time with Chelsea, Joe, what are you saying Christian Pulisic is good at, bad at, and his ideal position? Let's start with good
2: at and bad at. Generally speaking, I think Christian Pulisic is good at a lot of things. Extremely fast, very good dribbler. He's aggressive with his pressure, although I think he does a lot less of that with the U.S. men's national team than he does with Chelsea, in so many senses, he's a prototypical modern winger. He thrives in those transition moments. He's aggressive in one v one situations, and he has the skill to blow by you. Now, and I'm guessing a lot of people's alarm bells are going off right now. We didn't really see that player, the player I just described, for the U.S. Men's National Team earlier on in World Cup qualifying. We haven't seen him much at all this this calendar year in 2022, and dating back to the end of 2021, either. And I don't know exactly what the reasons for that is. But it seems to me, and I think you guys would agree, Christian Polisek is not in good form right now. He doesn't look sharp on the ball. He didn't look sharp on the ball earlier for the US. Although the the one exception to that I'll I'll state is I thought he was actually pretty good off the bench against Honduras. And Taylor, you and I didn't talk about that in our post-game review. But going back and watching his his actions from those you know, the 20, 30 minutes, whatever it was, off the bench. I thought he was sharp, and I thought he was getting the ball off of his foot quicker, which is a good thing. But he hasn't been doing that kind of stuff. He couldn't beat Alistair Johnson 1v1 against Canada. He struggled with his positioning, and he wasn't vertical enough against El Salvador earlier on in the window. I don't think he brings much, even in good form, I don't think he brings much in the way of playmaking passing. I don't think he's much of a chance creator with his passing. But man, when he's on, he's electric. The challenge, though, for the U.S. and Chelsea is that he just hasn't been on in far too long. And that, for me, is a big concern, Joe, because watching his
1: performances with the U.S., I I agree with what you said he's good at, and I agree with your point that, but right now it doesn't seem like he's good at any of that. The one that stood out, uh, 72-02 versus Honduras. There's a loose ball. He chests it down. And then there is space for him to attack. If he goes at it aggressively, he might be able to kind of find a shooting opportunity himself, or he might draw defenders to him and lay it off. And instead, he kind of doesn't really accelerate. He takes a couple slow... Not slow, but not aggressive touches. They're sort of just a little bit out in front, and it allows three defenders to close on him. He ends up getting dispossessed. He also gets kicked, and I think that is part of it. I think he's getting kicked a lot, fouled a lot, is dealing with injuries. But there is a just a hesitation there that I think was so not present when he was uh, like hitting his stride at Dortmund, when he was hitting his stride at Chelsea. He was very aggressive. He was direct in his attacks, and it just seems like some of that confidence has gone down. Graham, I know you watched a bit more of his time with Chelsea than you did his US side. What have you seen from him there? Do you see that same sort of downturn in confidence, or do you see other things factoring in?
3: Oh, I, I, absolutely. Um, and I think that is a, that's a, a tell, everything that you just spoke about there, Taylor, that's a tell for when Pulisic is low on confidence, when he's not really feeling himself any He's taking way too many touches of the ball and he's been getting a, quite a bit of criticism for it in England. Let's not forget he is a, what was he, 65 million pound player or 65 million euro player. So he is a high profile figure in, in you know English football. It's not just the US focus on him. There's a lot of talk about Pulisic in English football. And um particularly in a in a recent match against Manchester City, where he kept getting the, the chance to drive at his man and he refused to time and time again. The commentators were really on his back. Now, we analyzed that game in uh on weekend review, and I think I made the point of, well, maybe that was maybe that was Tuchel giving him that sort of instruction. Maybe he was trying to draw Man City out, which they did very effectively in the Champions League final. But we've then seen that from Pulisic in games where he's been hooked off at halftime or hooked off early for a player who does something slightly different. He's been that player for the US and the recent internationals. I watched the the Canada game live and, you know, while I want the US to do well, I'm not a Died in the Wolf fan like you two are. I was pretty much shouting at my laptop for Christian Pulisic to drive and take on players because that's, you know, when he's at his best, he is, he's driving into space, he's getting in behind opposition, opposition fullbacks. What you want is to create overloads and then quickly shift the ball into space for Pulisic to run onto. He, at his best, he's a very willing runner. He's quick to get to the byline. And in terms of his physical attributes, Joe, you mentioned there, his, his, his pace, you know, that's obviously key for him. He's got good acceleration. So whether he's getting a cross in or getting a shot away, I think when Pulisic is at his best, he's doing things quickly. You know, he, he's standing up at a man, he's taking a, a, a touch to shift the ball at a different angle and he's getting a shot away or a cross away. I see nothing of that in Pulisic's game recently. And it's, and it's gone on. For a while, the other thing that I haven't seen much of from Pulisic is, I, I think, um, Pulisic has the instincts of a goal scorer. When I think of Pulisic at his best, as I say, I, I'm, I, I'm, I think of him driving with the ball at a defender and shifting the ball quickly, getting low shots away. But I also think about him getting into dangerous areas inside the penalty box. Um, that's something I definitely associate with him when I think of him when he was a properly key player for Chelsea. When people were saying in his first season that he was the perfect replacement for Hazard, who'd gone to Real Madrid. Um, that was under Lampard. um And there's a goal he scored against Leicester City back in November of this season. That's the sort of thing I'm talking about. So, what happens is Ziek drives his man down the right. Pulisic gets into a central position off the left. He's starting on the left, but he's drifted into the centre. He recognises when the pass is coming. He actually also recognises when Ziek is, it feigns. He, you know, he, he, he does a fake. He goes one way, then the next. Pulisic recognises that. He loses his marker. He darts. Back into the six yard box, and he slides at home under pressure from the from the, from the goalkeeper from about four yards out. That is also something I associate with Pulisic, and obviously I am talking about an example from this season. But that is a rare case that we've seen that from him this season. So there are a few things that he's not doing this year, or or didn't do, hasn't done in the last year that I um want to see more of, and I I consider to be kind of his best qualities. And I want to add one
2: thing because uh, Graham, I agree with everything you just said. It's easy for us to say these things. It's a lot easier. It's a lot harder, excuse me, if you're Christian Pulisic and you've missed two months of the season with an ankle injury, with COVID, and and you've been played out of position for the vast majority of the season as well, either as a nine or playing as a wingback. Maybe not the majority, but he spent a lot of time away from the left half space or the right half space, which I think is the area that he really thrives in before he goes and breaks in behind the back line. So a lot of the the mystery behind why isn't he in good form, I think, is solved with some of those things. He hasn't been playing a whole lot. He's been dealing with those injuries, and he's been dealing with either not playing or playing in weird spots. That takes a toll on you mentally. I can imagine how challenging that is. And hopefully things can stabilize at Chelsea. Hopefully things can stabilize a little bit with Pulisic and with the national team. And we'll see the, the classic version of Christian Pulisic, the project restart version or the at times for Dortmund version of Christian Pulisic that has been just so, so good for club and
3: country. I don't think Tuchel has helped him at all with the number of different positions he's been playing. He's been playing occasionally on the left side of the attack. He's been playing on the right side. He's been playing as a, as a false nine. I think he played against Man City as a false nine. He's played as a right wing back yeah. at times. So I don't think that has helped him at all get into a, a rhythm in terms of his performances. And then he's away with the US and obviously that's a different coach and a different environment and everything. So he's had between that and the injuries, Joe, that you mentioned there. He has had a lot to contend with, to be fair to him. So that begs the question, in my mind at least, is like, how do we
1: know when he's better? How does he get better? If it is injuries, if it is playing out of position, if it is lacking in confidence, and if there are some technical things that maybe he can improve on as well, I I don't know if the answer is, like, what needs to happen, but maybe, like, what do you feel like is the sign that he is in a better headspace, he is kind of playing more dominant football? Is it him starting on the left wing for a couple games for Chelsea and going at people? Do we want to see him drawing some fouls after dusting somebody? Like, what, what, Joe, would make you feel confident that Christian Pulisic is back to his best?
2: Playing quicker on and off the ball. Graham talked about how the the touches in his mind are a symptom. The extra touches are a symptom of a lack of confidence, which is sort of counterintuitive, but I'm completely on board with that idea. When you take an extra touch, there's that lack of decisiveness, indecisiveness. Boom, I speak English. Um, There's those moments (laughs) where he's just not being aggressive enough I think he needs to move quicker on and off the ball. And when those things are happening, he's a better player. If The players around him are better suited to impact the game as well. So if we're seeing for Chelsea or maybe we fast forward to March and it's with the U.S. men's national team, quicker play, one and two touch passing, quick, aggressive, vertical dribbling, running into the box, off the ball, crashing the six on the weak side. I think at that point you can feel pretty confident that Christian Pulisic is rounding back into classic Christian Pulisic
3: form.
1: And Graham, are, I, I'm assuming you would be most comfortable with him playing on the left wing, either for club or country.
3: Yeah, I, I I know some people prefer him on the right, but I liken it to when, to my eye, it's a bit like watching Marcus Rashford play on the right side. They know what positions to be in, but everything they do, certainly in terms of a final ball or attacking output in general, is just not. It's not done with the same conviction on the right side as with the as on the left. So yes, I I personally think he's he's most effective on the left. Joe, you good with that? Yeah, I'm good on the left, although I'm I'm super not
2: opposed to seeing him on the right either on a more consistent basis. Maybe that helps him play a little quicker, and he's not as tempted to always drift inside, like, like too far inside. But either way, I think Christian Pulisic starting on A-wing is a good thing.
1: <laughs> starting on A-wing consistently and doing things consistently. Yeah, I'd be good with that. Uh, we've talked about three. Let's talk about Anthony Robinson-Graham, uh, a player who uh, I think in the... Uh, In the group chat, you were saying you think you are more positive about than I am. And I think that's probably fair because I was watching him again. I still have issues with his crossing, but I'm excited to hear you say nice things about him.
3: Yeah, so I, um, as with every player on this list, watched a lot of him in Scout, went through his uh, stats bomb figures and everything like that. And his his crossing was where I kind of focused a lot of my attention because I, I know that you have misgivings about that. And I think it's fair to say he could do with sharpening up his his accuracy. So he's he's averaging just 1.1 accurate crosses per 90 minutes for Fulham this season compared to 2.7 inaccurate crosses. That's not an atrocious ratio by any stretch, but if you look at someone like Alfonso Davis, who is maybe a direct uh comparison as Canada's first choice well, I was gonna say first choice left back, but I don't really know. He just plays any position he wants for Canada, I think, and is very, very good at it. Yep. But anyway, we'll say for this purpose he's a he's a left back and his number is um is is pretty much Uh, His his, uh, accurate to inaccurate cross ratio is pretty similar. It's 1.2 per 90 to 1.4. So that to me says that Robinson is getting in the same number of accurate crosses per game as someone like Davis, but all those extra crosses that he's making are, are, are pretty wasteful. They're not really coming to anything. But then when I look at things like progressive carries for for Robinson and this was the most impressive section um for me when I looked through not just when I I looked through the the, the numbers but also when I was the eye test as well it was the thing that stood out most most to me was when you give Robinson the ball you are going to move up the pitch um, he's in the 92nd percentile for progress prese, progressive carries per 90 among European leagues over the last year even better than this he's in 99th percentile for carries into the final third and the 99th percentile for progressive carrying distance So as I say, if you get the ball to him, there's a good chance he's going to get you up the pitch. And that in itself makes him a valuable player to have for the US because obviously a lot of the chat has been about the centre-backs and, well, who's going to get you out from the back? Well, they have someone like Robinson to get you up the pitch. So I think in in general, yes, I can see where you're coming from, Taylor. I think his crossing could do with a little bit of sharpening, but... It's it's better to have him there than to not have him there, I think.
1: So if you're putting on your coach's hat for a second, Graham, if we're saying his progressive carries are a particularly strong skill set, his crossing is okay but could be better. If you were Burhalter, would you try to adjust what you're doing so that when Robertson gets into that final third, you're less reliant on him crossing? Would you like to have more people sort of making underlapping runs or would you like to have somebody there for him to cut back to and you can play it central? Or do you think, just stick with the crossing, eventually we'll get some bodies in the box and
3: things will happen? Uh, well, I mean, I think for any team, I, I would like to have as much variety as, as possible. So yes, I would like to have different options. Maybe that is something that... Um, do you feel like the U.S. Taylor are just maybe a little bit too reliant on his crossing into the box and can be a little bit one-dimensional? Do you see a bit of uh, David Moyes-esque Manchester United in that approach? Is that what you're you're getting I think, at there? I think w- what I saw initially, and I feel like I saw in the rewatch again,
1: is there seems to be a, a disparity between with the crosses that are coming in and what the attacking runners are doing. And it feels like the U.S. Peralta wants his attacking attackers arriving late. He wants maybe one in the box to occupy defenders. He wants everybody else getting there as the cross is being delivered or as the cross is arriving. And that works, I think, if you have the personnel in place to make those runs, to be in position to hold, and then we go. And I feel like oftentimes because Robinson is so quick or because there's such an improvisational way that the U.S. attacks, when he's putting those crosses in... It's sort of like, are there bodies there? I think so. I'm just putting it in. And it seems to be sometimes it's near, sometimes it's far, sometimes it's low, sometimes it's high, sometimes it's a lofted one, sometimes it's driven. And there doesn't seem to be a ton of consistency to the crosses coming in and where those runners are meeting those crosses, if at all. So I think I would like to see... Maybe just a little bit more direction to those crosses, or like intention to those to those crosses. But I would also love to see more numbers in the box more consistently, with trailing runners still arriving. I think that would be my ideal solution.
3: Yeah, fair enough. I I can see that, and that's maybe down to the to the eye test. So his, his numbers are. Are, um, are pretty decent, but I can absolutely see what you're saying. Maybe, maybe that is also down to the numbers, as you say, they're the numbers that the US are getting into the box. The number of times that he would put across into the box, and I was like, eh, there's one guy in there that you're aiming for. <laughs> and I don't know whether that's Robinson who needs to, you know, stop and wait for runners to get into the box, or maybe his teammates need to be more proactive in getting into the box. It's maybe a little bit of both there. But yeah, yeah I think that's a, a fair assessment. Joe, I, I, I suspect
1: I've taken us down a negative road by leading us straight into crossing. Uh, I will say on a positive note, watching him again and seeing how good he is at closing space and making sure to get back defensively and to shut down uh, attackers. I think his defensive positioning and overall speed make him a really good defender when the U.S. is transitioning to defense and putting out some fires. So I think he is exceptionally good in that regard. Joe, any other things you think he's good at, bad at uh, overall for Anthony Robinson?
2: I think you guys have done a really good job of summarizing his game. Anthony Robinson's not a particularly complicated player, right? He fits a lot of the <laughs> yeah. mid-2010s fullback criteria, yeah. right? Yeah. Overlapping, check. Uh, providing width, check. Fast, check. Legs to cross, check. I mean, he he is that kind of player. He's not super versatile in his offensive positioning. He's going to stay wide. A lot of the time when the U.S. are in the attacking half. Now, one thing that we don't talk about a lot, and I mentioned it after the Honduras game, the the back three shape that the U.S. often builds out of, not builds, but they, they'll possess out of a back through with Adams dropping in between or with Des tucking in on the right side alongside the center backs or with A-Rob doing it on the left I think he does a pretty good job of of recognizing the moments where he needs to drop back and tuck inside a little bit more. So I think he does a good job of of hanging back a little deeper and providing real value in rest defense, which is when your team is in possession, but you're preparing yourself for when you're out of possession. so you you have that positioning ready to go and counterpress. He's a good defensive presence with his athleticism and his pressing ability. That's a huge thing for the u s with how they want to approach games since twenty nine from from twenty nineteen to now in twenty twenty two Under Greg Berlter, this team has become an aggressive, pressing team in a way they just were not before. And A-Rob helps out with a lot of those things on the left side. So, yeah, I think he does need to improve his crossing. There were a lot of erratic crosses in in this past World Cup qualifying window. That happens at times for Fulham, and it's happened with the U.S. in the past, too. But he does bring a lot. You just have to know with A-Rob, you are getting a pretty set player, and and he just needs to work on improving those things that are within his game to really get the most out of—or for Berhalter to get the most out of him at left back.
1: One other thing I wanted to note with Anthony Robinson— I think he is very smart in his fouling. Uh, he does a decent amount of professional fouling. Never seems like he is going to draw that obvious yellow card because it, it tends to be moments where he'll he'll step to a defender who could be transitioning to attack and makes that player maybe turn backwards with the ball. But then if Robertson recognizes that there are no U.S. players around him or close enough to help make a play and that ball is just going to go backwards, there's going to be a retention of possession. Maybe there'll be an outlet pass central and that could trigger something. He'll foul. And And he'll just foul by sort of maybe being overly aggressive, bumping a little bit too much, or just getting a little bit too handsy. Uh, But the ref's never going to give a card for that, but will give the foul that does allow the U.S. to kind of drop in, get their defensive shape set, and then the opposition restarts. And I think that there is value to knowing when to foul and how to make that foul happen such that you don't get booked, you don't start kind of drawing the referee's attention. So I think he's a pretty clever defender as well, which is a nice thing, because I feel like this is the first one where we don't have considerably more what is he bad at than what is he good at uh, notes I'm happy to leave it there Graham unless you have anything else you'd like to add
3: about uh, Mr. Anthony Robinson nope all I right. think we uh, we covered it all and I very much am in favor, favor of the A-Rob nickname that uh, Joe has coined I like, coined, it. I like so. it
1: and I guess we could all agree that he'll play left back yeah
3: yeah alright yeah. <laughs> fair enough
1: alright two more players first one quick break
0: this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an
1: assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Well, luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based, live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. Joe Lowry. We're going to talk about two-thirds of the MMA midfield right now. Let's start with Eunice Musa, and I will lead by saying... Watching Yunus Musa and just paying attention to all the things he does, he is a majestic, super fun player who is also very raw and has he's another seventy-five percenter for me, in that every dribble there's like one heavy touch or one sort of weird, awkward bounce that he ends up making up for. But it's never one hundred percent tight the way you might like to see. Joe, your thoughts on Yunus Musa?
2: Taylor, I feel like whenever you intro us into a conversation <laughs> yeah. about Musa, you turn into Leslie Nope talking to Ann Perkins and, and going like majestic musk ox or something yeah. <laughs> about Yunus Musa. I love you
1: majestic it. Majestic starfish? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, I I love Eunice Musa. Yep. I've said that before and I will say it again. He is good at a lot of really important things, he is also limited in a lot of important areas. I want to preface this whole conversation with the fact that he is 19 and does not play with his does not play the same role with his club team as he does with his national team, and that is for him to be playing central midfield as well as he does for the U.S. without playing there almost at all for Valencia blows my mind. This kid is insane, and he's going to be very very good as if he's not already. Things he's good at: Yunus Musa. Receiving the ball centrally and driving forward on the dribble, you can you can translate that into into Valencian knowledge by saying he's good at receiving the ball out wide on the right because that's where he usually plays and driving the ball forward. That's when we first coined the term "mousa maneuver." He he has these highlight reel carries for club and country, but let's focus on the national team at least for my section of this conversation. He had some of those highlight reel carries in the last window. But the one that always stands out to me for Musa is the one against Mexico in Cincinnati. Taylor, you were there in person. It's the 60th minute. Zach Steffen throws the ball out to Eunice Musa in traffic. I don't know exactly why he made that throw. Maybe he trusts Musa just that much. Musa weaves past Edson Alvarez, which is not easy to do, and, and drives the ball forward into midfield. And he ends up losing the ball, which is not the, the most fun part to talk about in this particular situation. But I think he was probably fouled. And if not, it still shows how good he is at driving the ball forward. And he's physical. He can take and absorb pressure. He can drive forward even with a guy on his hip or a guy in his back. The nice thing, though, about the fact that he, at least for my narrative purposes, lost the ball against Mexico is I think there's an issue right now with Musa, that I believe stems from his lack of time as an eight for club. There's an issue with Musa of knowing when to stop dribbling. He has the speed over longer distances, isn't the quickest when it comes to changing directions, but when he's driving forward, He's not the most willing passer, or at least this is what I see in the film. He's a dribble-first kind of player, not a pass-first kind of player. And there is a place for that kind of stuff. But you need balance. There's this There's this play at the beginning of the Canada game in Hamilton, Ontario, just last week, where he's getting on the ball, and he, he presses and wins it in the press for the U.S. on the right side of central midfield. But then he just dribbles forward into pressure. He dribbles forward into Canada instead of releasing the ball quicker. And that for me is, is the challenge of Musa right now. Sometimes he's so confident and content to dribble. He's confident in his dribbling ability and content to dribble that he takes too many touches and he's prepared to dribble by them. And when he's preparing himself to dribble by them, he misses a chance to pass by them, you know, to, to move the ball on the ground and get the ball off of his foot a little bit quicker. So that's the dichotomy for Eunice Musa right now. I think he's so incredibly skillful. He's so good on the ball, but the real room for him to improve, and I think what he's missing a little bit with the U.S. right now, is releasing the ball quicker finding moments to be creative in his passing to help the us beat a low block but man i i'm optimistic that that stuff's going to come with time again he's 19 you guys
3: joe when when you say he doesn't know when to stop dribbling i, I couldn't help but think of the the sailor and the simpsons he goes not a quarter gar he'll be dancing for hours <laughs> <laughs> ryan is smiling right now <laughs> he'll, Grant, be, ryan he'll, is he'll be dribbling right for hours <laughs>
1: Uh, Graham, w- what do you think about Joe's analysis of Yunus Musa? Where are you on the uh, the teenager?
3: Yeah, he, I think Joe has is, is pretty much nailed it there. My thoughts are, are pretty similar. I do find him. I think what what biases my opinion of Musa is I've seen more of him for Valencia than I've seen for him for the the US. You know, Robinson as a player, I've seen more of him for the US than than Fulham. You know, Zardes it's fifty fifty. But Musa, I watch a lot of La Liga, so I've seen loads of him for club level. And the way he's used at club level is uh, it's confusing. <laughs> he's sometimes used as a winger. He's used as a secondary striker. He then plays obviously a very different position for the US. So he he's a slightly confusing player in terms of trying to nail down his skill set. But when I see him for the US, I think it's fair to say the US get the best version of Yunus Musa. That's that's the that's the most impressive player when he's in that that midfield unit. He unfortunately doesn't get to really play that position for Valencia. And I, I think one of the the best things about Musa for the U.S. is his spatial awareness. Um, So he's very good at not just driving into space, but knowing where the space is to drive into. And in that respect, he reminds me a little bit of um, Jude Bellingham, who has maybe a, a little bit of a similar skill set, I think bellingham is is a more kind of polished player than musa he 's maybe a a better shooter, a better finisher he 's got more of a, a sharper edge in front of goal but i 've spoken previously on the pod about how there 's a a new brand of central midfielder who essentially play a little bit like a winger in a central role. I think Bellingham is maybe the best example of this but you have uh, Alex Oxley Chamberlain who's played like this for Liverpool and that's the player that I when he's playing at his best that's the player that I see in Musa. Um and it, and it, he does take some compensating for in that midfield unit because obviously I mean if you look at his passing statistics they're they're pretty terrible but that's that's because that's not his role in that team you know the us doesn't need him to be that that hub of possession in the same way that Tyler Adams is or even Weston McKennie he's a very different player to that but he he maybe does need a structure alongside him he does need an adams he does need a mckennie and maybe valencia don't have that maybe that's why they feel they can't play him in that position but At Valencia, he's very confusing, but having seen him played for the U.S., as I say, I think you guys get the the best version of him that I've seen so far. Grim, I want to know
2: more about this idea of of the next breed of central midfielders being more like wingers. What do you mean when you Mm -hmm. say that? I'm
3: sure you've explained it before, but I'm curious. Yeah, just in terms of the way that they, they carry the ball, I guess, is yeah, a, as a okay. key feature of that. Um, so Bellingham is very, very good at that. Oxley Chamberlain, obviously, he's had injury troubles and is a bit of a peripheral figure, but when, at the start, when he, when he was in that team under Klopp, that, that was what he was in the side to do, was to, you know, get Liverpool up the pitch and so I see that with Musa as well you know he's the one who will take the ball and and carry it. and that's maybe something that, you know 10 years ago that a, a winger would have been that would have been their job you know would be to carry the pitch carry the ball what 30 yards up the pitch maybe even more um but that that's kind of i am seeing that more in central midfielders I think Chouamane as well the Monaco youngster who's in the French team he does that very well too Um Paul Pogba maybe you could say, say he, there's a little bit of that in him although I wouldn't say he's really a, a winger in a, in a central midfield position but that's what I see in, in Moussa. Ole, Ole just plays him out on the wing so he just is a winger you know? <laughs> that's true actually yeah he, I forgot that happened wow what a weird time <laughs> We have so much positive stuff to say about Yunus
1: Musa. It it does sort of back up the idea that he is one of the most important players in the pool. Joe, would you have him in your sort of if you're drafting a team, is he in your top 3 picks?
2: Uh no. Okay. No, he's not, but he's still I mean he's a, he's a huge part of this national team. I think I would pick Adams and McKenney and and Wea and probably Giorena if he's healthy and maybe even Matt Turner over someone like Yunus Musa, but man, He's, he's a phenomenal player now. And for me, everything I say about Musa is colored through this idea that he is 19. You know, even, even the gap between 19 and, and Tyler Adams at 22, who we're going to talk about in just a second, feels so large to me. Just because with, with Musa, it seems like there's so much untapped potential because he still isn't playing as an eight for his club. When that happens and he starts to get more reps and we start to see maybe more cracks in his game, then maybe the narrative changes a little bit. But even then, you you expect to see some of those growing pains so i just can't wait to see musa play that spot reliably and regularly for a team whether it's valencia or someone else and in my mind maybe it's someone else but man somewhere else but man he is he's a great player and i love watching him
1: i i love that joe i love the idea of basically he has this thing to work on but he's got aging to do And we basically aren't sure what we're sure of. So we need to wait and see how he develops. I love that. That feels like a good place to end with Yunus Musa. Let's close out the show by talking about Tyler Adams, Graham, uh, a player that we all probably have a a good amount of familiarity with for club and for country. uh, But I'm glad that you got to kind of go in depth with him a little bit more.
3: Yeah, so he as you say, he's someone that we we've all watched a lot. He's he's playing at a high level in the Champions League with with Leipzig, um, even in, in MLS days. I've seen a bit of him there. And I think of all the players that we analyzed here, that this was the Adams was the guy who I got exactly what I expected to get from Tyler Adams. So I think we we all know, you know, what he's good at. He's he plays at um at the base of the The midfield, he's a, he's a hub of possession, his possession stats are, are are pretty good, his, his coverage is maybe one of the most impressive parts of his game, so, um, he's in the ninth, sorry, the 79th percentile for opposition dribblers contested per 90 minutes, which was a new, uh, measurement for me, I hadn't come across that one, but I quite like that one, and he's in the 88th percentile for successful pressures per 90 minute. Um, most telling is that he averages 11.84 pressures in the midfield thirds per 90 minutes, which is a, a pretty impressive number and puts him in the, ni- the 95th percentile, I believe. So um obviously we know that he provides a lot of protection. I, when I was looking back over the tape, um, one of his kind of trademark moves, I'm going to call it the stop start. Which is when he has the ball, two opposition players are closing him down, and he does that thing where you stop yeah. and start very quickly to lose them, and he dri- just drives away from the ball and make, uh, with the ball, I should say, and makes them look very stupid. And obviously, this is quite a niche thing to reference because I only came across it three times, I think, in my na- analysis. But I think it shows that Adams is good at working in tight spaces, which is quite important for a central midfielder in this role, in this mould, I should say. He is extremely press resistant, and that requires a good technical skill. But he also has good awareness of what's around him and where his teammates are. And also he seems to play with quite a lot of confidence as well. So that's what I I saw in my my analysis of uh, one of your favorites, Taylor, Tyler Adams. Uh, He
1: is, even if he has the wrong name. uh, Joe, a lot of positives there from Graham. Any you'd like to add or any negatives you maybe think he needs to work on?
2: Okay, first, I've been holding it in this whole time, but Graham, when you, when you speak with numbers, it is, it warms my heart. It is just so beautiful. (laughs) That is without a doubt my favorite part of this entire show, Graham. I'm just so thankful and I've enjoyed every second of it. Um, good things about Tyler Adams. Incredible pressure, right? He is everywhere defensively. Graham listed off a whole bunch of numbers about that. I'll add one more. He's in the top, uh, he's in the 88th percentile, excuse me, in successful pressures per 90 among central midfielders in the top five leagues in European competitions. That's really impressive. He is everywhere at all times. He reads the game so well during counter-pressing moments. He can step in and apply aggressive pressure in those counter-pressing moments. And, man, he covers ground. And all of those things are so valuable. He'll track back and, and you make a 45-yard sprint to get back into the box and make a play inside the U.S.'s own 18. We saw that in this past round of World Cup qualifying. We've seen that so many other times before for club and country. And all of those things are incredibly valuable. And, and Graham read off a bunch of numbers about that, and I, I read off one too. We still can't really, from a stats perspective, quantify a lot of those things. I'm guessing we'll get there in the next five or ten years, but we still don't really know what makes a good defender. But when you watch Tyler Adams and you see how he moves and controls space, he, to me, in so many different ways, is the model for how to control and move and, and run a team as they're preparing to counterpress or as they're actively counterpressing or defending. So he's incredible at so many of those defensive things. Where I don't necessarily agree with with Graham is, is with his offensive work. And maybe it's because we're seeing more cracks or maybe this was a particularly poor window for him on the ball with the U.S. men's national team. But Taylor, we talked about it. A number of turnovers on the ball, turnovers in bad spots against El Salvador and against Canada, the two games that Adams played in, in this last window, he wasn't very good on the ball. He wasn't rangy with his passing, and that's something that I think goes back to, to his time with the Red Bulls in in uh, Major League Soccer. He's not this dynamic switcher of of the point of attack. He's not going to do a lot of those things, but the challenge is... He's, he's turning the ball over in bad spots, or at least he did with the U.S., and he's not a particularly aggressive passer when how, with how he drives the ball forward. Paul Harvey had a tweet after, I believe, the end of the U.S. men's national team window. Paul Harvey is a data analyst and does a lot of good stuff for U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer covering, covering those things, so go follow him on Twitter. He tweeted this, per FB Ref, Tyler Adams takes 16.2 attempted passes per every progressive pass, and, and a progressive pass, pass, excuse me, is pass that moves the ball forward a significant distance. I'll summarize it that way. He takes 16.2 attempted passes per every progressive pass, which is just under the 25th percentile. That's not good, right? And we're seeing that. There's this clip against Canada, the 60th minute. Tyler Adams gets on the ball from A-Rob on that left side, doesn't even try to play forward. He just balances the ball back to Chris Richards. There's another moment in that game, I believe it's in the 29th minute, where Adams doesn't even check his shoulder to try and play forward. Maybe that's El Salvador, I can't remember at this point, but... Too many times, Adam is not, Adams is not trying to move the ball forward, which feels weird given that he's a Red Bull player through and through, but it's borne out in the data, and I think it's been borne out in the film too. He doesn't seem to me like a reliable, progressive presence on the ball, and that that is a little concerning
3: for me. Do, Joe, do you think he has that in his locker? So I'm, I'm going to contrast my opinion of Adams with my opinion previously of uh, Luca De La Torre. So... Look at De, De La Torre, I criticized for being a bit too safe with his passing and not, um, progressing the ball forward and, and, and being pressing with his passing. I then, uh, I know he had, then had a good game for the US just purely to spite me, I believe yep. is uh, what happened there. But the reason that I was harsher on De La Torre is I see a player with a skill set to be more adventurous, to be more proactive. Does Adams have that in his locker or is he limited in that way in terms of his, his, his skill set? I think he's somewhat limited, but Adams clearly can progress the ball, right? He, I mean, I was watching clips of him for Red
2: Bull and even clips with the U.S. Men's National Team. He does play the ball forward and he has the ability to build rhythm and he can connect and drive play. The issue is, and I don't know what the challenge is behind it, but the issue right now for Adams is he's not doing that often enough. He's not doing that on a regular basis. And he clearly can. He has the ability to check his shoulder and drive forward on the ball or with his passing. It's just not happening often enough right now. And at 22, there's probably still time to change some of those tendencies. I don't know how much longer he has before Kind of this is just the Tyler Adams we get, which is, don't get me wrong, still an incredible help to the U.S. men's national team. And it's still a phenomenal soccer player. But I think it's in his locker, Graham. I just want to see more of it. And we're just not getting that right now.
1: I would, I would argue, I would agree with you, Joe, and I would argue that some of that is down to coaching because going back and looking at his time with Leipzig this season and comparing it to the season before and even since Jesse Marsh was let go, I think when he is really good in that progressive passing, when he is moving the ball forward and into feet, It's usually very direct. They've won the ball back, and it's his first or second touch. He's playing a one-time ball 30 yards up the field, or he takes a touch, and then he plays it up the pitch. But either way, it's very direct. And that was, we know now, a hallmark of what Jesse Marsh wanted his Leipzig team to be, was very aggressive in that counterattack, get the ball forward, be direct. And I think Adams can do that. Under Nagelsmann, when they're chasing games and they're trying to be aggressive and getting everybody forward, I remember Adams picking up the ball and carrying it forward and dribbling between two players and then splitting the lines. And i think I think he can do that when he is effectively forced into it, but I also think uh, under Tedesco and under Burhalter, there's less of an emphasis on that direct attack, especially through the middle. If he is trying to kind of trigger a counterattack, it tends to be through the channels, and I think he isn't going to be the one to do that. He's going to spread it wide and let somebody else carry it forward or play it forward, and so I think... To some extent, at least some of this is explained by the managers he's playing for and the style of football he's being asked to play. So I agree. I think he can do it. I just think he's not getting much of an opportunity or much encouragement to do so.
2: Yeah, and hopefully that changes over the next, you know, over the rest of this season, maybe for Leipzig and and with the U.S. men's national team in March. Because both of those teams need Adams to drive the ball, even if it's not always the right thing under Tedesco, even if it's not always the right thing under Berhalter. Finding the proper balance there is something that's lacking from Tyler Adams right now, and I hope we see more, more aggressive play from him, and, from him, and really the rest of this U.S. team as we head into March, Taylor.
1: And then the obvious question: ideal position, right wing back or just right back? <sighs>
2: six, 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 six. All the sixes.
1: Joe, all the sixes, huh? All right. Uh, did, well, I appreciate that Joe did not enjoy that and instead gave me a frustrated <laughs> uh, sound. Graham, anything else to add uh, on Tyler Adams or any of the other players we have discussed?
3: No, I I just feel uh, very educated now after my (laughs) six hours of research, half of it on uh, Zardes.
1: (laughs) I'm glad that you know so much about Gyasi Zardes, and I appreciate uh, all the effort, Graham Rutherford. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for watching all the footage, for talking all the players, for making sense of a few of them, because my head was hurting, and now it hurts less. (laughs)
3: Thank you, Taylor. That that was genuinely uh, very enjoyable. I enjoyed this podcast. I uh, I hope you did as well. I did. I will be honest.
1: It's my my, my my neurotic nature. But rather than hear that as a compliment, I just instantly hear that as like, do you do you not enjoy the other ones, Graham? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, Ryan wasn't here <laughs> to make fun of Graham and Scarlet. There so we that, go. That might help. There we go. Bit. That's definitely yeah, that's- it. <laughs> yeah, that's instantly a win. Uh,
1: I hope he's listening. Joe Lowry, uh, I'm glad you were here as well today, my friend. You are always wonderful. Thank you for all the same things I just thank Graham for.
2: Uh Taylor, I'm finally over my flashbacks of that first half away to Honduras yeah, where Tyler good. Adams was playing right wing back. It's always fun, Taylor.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, hopefully y'all had fun as well. We'll talk to you very soon.